Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. This is the reading of God's word. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed him. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, uh, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read, from the lips of children and infants you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. Amen. Uh, well, I mentioned this before, but today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Passion Week, which is the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, Matthew uses almost a third of his gospel talking about these last few days. So if you read the, through the whole book, uh, you'll really start to feel the pace of the narrative slow down here, which kind of forces all of us to slow down with it and pay attention to every detail. Right? And today, um, we gather uh, to remember the story that Palm Sunday commemorates, and it's this story in Matthew 21 of Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem. Now, I kind of want to uh, have us all maybe visualize Washington, D.C., right? I want you to think about the protests and the marches you've read about in your history books. Think about the images that you've seen on the news even from this past year. Um, you know, the image that comes to mind for me is that famous photo from the March on Washington in 1963, where you have MLK standing at the Lincoln Memorial with just crowds of people gathered around him. And, and this is what's happening here. Jesus is approaching the capital city of Jerusalem. There's a buzz in the air. You know, people have gathered from all over to be a part of this event. It's Passover week. It's the biggest celebration of the year. So the city is bustling with people who've made this trek up the mountain to be here. And there's this huge crowd around Jesus as he enters a city. And if you remember from last week, we read the story that comes right before this one, where on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus encounters two blind men who call out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. 
right? And Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? And you kind of have to understand the arc of Matthew's narrative to get the significance of this moment because this is actually the first time that Jesus publicly responds to someone who refers to him using that messianic title, Son of David. Okay, so, you know, everyone in the crowd knows exactly who these blind men were referring to because that title, Son of David, is embedded into the story of Israel. You know, the Son of David is... Uh, refers to the long-awaited Messiah who was predicted centuries earlier, right? This king from the line of David who was supposed to come and bring peace on earth and deliver God's people from oppression once and for all. And as the readers, you know, we've known all along that this is who Jesus is because the first line in the book of Matthew is, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we know like this is who he is as the reader, but nobody else in the story knows. So if you can kind of think about Matthew like a a superhero movie or something, like imagine the opening scene of the movie is Clark Kent and he's walking down an alley and he sees someone getting harassed and he walks up to the bad guys and they try to shoot him and the bullets just bounce off his chest and the bad guys get scared and they run away and the victim is like, who are you? And, and he's like, shh, you know? And, and this, is, this is what's happening throughout Matthew. You know, Jesus heals someone and he's like, shh, don't tell anyone who I am. And, and his disciples are frustrated throughout this book because they know his power. They've, they've seen him do incredible things. They, they've seen him cast out demons. Uh, they've seen him make the blind see and And they're like, why won't you just reveal yourself? Let's go overthrow the Roman government. Let's fix this thing once and for all. Everyone needs to know who you are. And Jesus keeps telling them, nope, not now, not yet, right? And and so like, you have to understand how shocked everyone probably is when these two blind men in front of all these people call out, Jesus, son of David, and he stops and says, what do you want me to do for you? It's like someone near the end of the movie calling out to Clark Kent, hey, Superman, and he stops and he turns around and he responds. Like the disciples in that moment, you gotta, they're thinking, oh my goodness, this is it. Like the revolution is on, you know? And so they're, they're probably really excited, but also probably terrified because they know the cat is out of the bag. They know like, The people who want him dead are now going to come knocking because people, he's revealing who he is, right? And all of this is setting up this final showdown between Jesus and the authorities in Jerusalem. And so the tension is thick when Jesus walks into the city. It says in verse 10 that the whole city was stirred up and they were saying, who is this? Okay, and that's the central question all of us are confronted with this morning as we read this story. Who is this? And we're going to see that everything Jesus does in this text is going to go against our preconceived notions of who he is and what he's like. He's never going to do what everyone wants him to do. And so as we go through this text, I want all of us to be asking ourselves that same question. Who is this? Because how you answer this question will determine whether you will crown him or cancel him. 
There is no middle ground. You will either embrace Jesus for who he is, or you will be utterly offended by him. Jesus is going to start saying and doing things that will force you to make a choice. You know, uh, I was talking to one of my friends this week who's been really vocal recently about racial justice. And uh, she was telling me that she never really used her voice growing up, you know, because she was taught at an early age, like many of us have, to like, don't stir the pot, you know, don't don't make a lot of noise, just just stay neutral, keep your head down, like be Switzerland, you know, like don't don't take a side on anything, you know, and and so she just learned how to suppress all her emotions, right? Well, this year, given everything that's happened, she's been speaking out a lot more. And she said it was interesting because this is who she's been all along. She just hasn't expressed it. And she said the moment she started revealing to people who she really was, all the people in her circle had to make a choice. They either loved her or they hated her. There was no more like, oh, she's she's pretty cool. Like, no, she was like, the things that I was saying, you know, you, you either were with me or against me. And she was just like, that was just the nature of what was happening. And, and so you have to understand, this is exactly what happens when Jesus starts to reveal who he really is, right? Like when Jesus is just healing people and he's just feeding the 5,000, like this is great. Everyone likes this Jesus. But the moment Jesus says and says like, I'm the Messiah, like, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Now you can start to understand why the same exact people who at the beginning of the week are shouting Hosanna to the son of David, by the end of the week are shouting crucify him. They loved him one second and then immediately canceled him the next because he turned out to be the opposite of who they thought he was. Right? So let's jump right into the text. Um, the first thing Jesus does already probably confuses people. He tells his disciples, go find him a donkey. Okay, so you got to think the disciples are like, you sure you want a donkey? Like, you're, you're Superman, you know? Uh, donkeys were for servants. They're not for conquering kings. Okay, in fact, history tells us that at the very same time Jesus is entering the city across town, Pontius Pilate is also entering Jerusalem. But Pontius Pilate is not on a donkey. He's for sure on a war horse, surrounded by an army in what would have been an incredible spectacle of might and power and force. It's kind of like how America shows up to everything, right? Always the loudest voice in the room, always flexing its wealth and power and status. And you have to ask yourself, if you were there in Jerusalem that day, which parade would you have been at? The one with all the pageantry and pomp and glitz and glamour? Or the one where a homeless man rides into the city on a donkey? Like, I'm pretty sure I know where most of us would be, myself included, right? And, and I think where we would choose to be on that day probably tells us a lot about, about the kind of Jesus we've created for ourselves. A Jesus who lives in a mansion in the Hollywood Hills, right? A Jesus decked out in Gucci from head to toe. Because following a Jesus like that implies that we're entitled to that as well. That we're entitled to power and wealth 
and status and a secure, comfortable life. I mean, that's the kind of Jesus many of us would love. But you see, this isn't the Jesus we see here in Matthew 21. We don't see a strong military leader who's going to wage war against Rome and destroy his enemies. We see the kind of leader spoken about by the prophet Zechariah centuries before this very moment. A humble king mounted on a donkey who would come not to destroy his enemies, but to lay his life down for his enemies. You know, a lot of us, I think, don't want to believe this is who Jesus is because, frankly, we don't want a life like that. Like, we would rather travel around on a war horse. We would rather be admired and respected and powerful. But Jesus shows us that the way he will be king is not through strength, but through weakness. Okay, so, so now you have Jesus. He's riding, into, riding this donkey into the city. People are putting their cloaks on the road. Some are cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road in front of him. And the first place Jesus goes is the temple. Okay, and, and to try to get us to understand the significance of the temple in those times, like the temple, I, I think sometimes in our minds, because we grew up in Sunday school reading these stories, we think about the temple as like this neighborhood church down the street, right? No, the temple would be like combining the U.S. Capitol, the White House, and Fort Knox in one institution, okay? It was the central hub of power in that culture. So when Jesus walks into the temple and he starts kicking tables over and throwing people out, he's literally starting a revolution. He, he's, he's not just walking down in, you know, to a street, uh, you know, t- walking down to, to the church down the street and turning over their welcoming table, right? He, he's, he's actually starting a re- revolution right now. Now, uh, I have to make this quick aside because I think when people read the Bible apart from its context, it, it leads them to do some ridiculous things. And, and now you can probably see how the people who rioted at the Capitol a couple months ago could have used a passage like this to justify going into the central power structure of their time, wanting to burn the whole thing down, right? Ironically, if the insurrectionists at the Capitol actually knew why Jesus was doing what he did at the temple, I think they would realize that they missed the point altogether, okay? Now, for a lot of people who grew up uh, in the church, you know, you may have been taught that the reason Jesus is so angry here in this, like, in this scene is that because people were selling things in the church and taking advantage of the poor. I, don't, I mean, that, that's at least how I learned this passage, that, you know, Jesus walked in and he was so upset that there was like all this buying and selling happening and the poor were being exploited. But it's really interesting because if you notice what it says in verse 12, it says Jesus drove out both the sellers and the buyers. Okay, so why would Jesus also throw out the people supposedly take, being taken advantage of? So we have to understand that like that's actually not what we've learned is actually not what's happening here. The problem is not that people are selling and buying in the temple courts. That's actually standard Jewish practice. Okay, so if you kind of like transport yourself back to that period of time, People walked into the temple and they needed to buy animals that they would then sacrifice to God. So the exchanging of goods, that's actually built into Jewish worship. So this isn't why Jesus is upset. 
Okay, notice what he says. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is a direct reference to Jeremiah 7, and it's very telling. Okay, because in Jeremiah 7, this is happening right before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. God says this in, in Jeremiah 7 verse 9. He says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury? burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. So the fact that Jesus makes this reference during this scene Jesus is saying, I'm not mad because of what you're doing in this temple. I'm mad because of what you're doing outside this temple and then acting like you're good because you come into this temple every week and go through the religious motions. I'm mad because of the way you're exploiting the weak and hoarding your wealth and mistreating people outside of this church and then come inside the church and act holier than thou right? Uh, one commentator put it like this, uh, it, you know, when, when Jesus calls it a den of robbers, a den is not where robbers do their stealing. A den is where robbers hide. They steal outside the den and, they, and then they come to the den to be safe from justice. And what Jesus is saying here is, I don't care how beautiful your sanctuary is. I don't care how many church programs you have, how robust your doctrine is. If you don't have love, if you're not caring for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, if you're not showing grace and compassion to those outside the church, don't you dare come into this house and act like you're good because you sang some songs and you sat here and listened to the word, right? We know this is what Jesus is saying because right after he kicks people out and he overturns the tables, it says the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You have to understand that the blind and lame were not welcome in the temple. These people were, you know, were judged by the religious as unclean and they were excluded from temple worship. And yet this, these are the very people who Jesus heals and welcomes into the house of God. You know, uh, right now, the American church is in crisis. You know, many of you by now have heard, read the story of Ravi Zacharias. Um, who was, by all accounts, one of the most influential Christian thinkers and leaders of our time. Uh, and I remember when he died last year, people from all over the world were posting stories about how his sermons and how his talks changed their lives, how he was the reason they became Christian, you know, how he was this bastion of Christianity. I mean, I was thinking these things too. You know, I remember watching Ravi videos in college and like having revival in my heart, right? And then a little, about a little over a month ago, we learned that while he was doing all these things, speaking at all these conferences and churches around the world, he was abusing hundreds of women, many of them Asian women who worked at spas, which I think hits a little bit too close to home given what's happened uh, in Atlanta a few weeks ago, right? How is it that someone who could articulate the gospel, who could articulate Christian theology so well, could be doing such horrific things to women? 
And he's just the biggest scandal. Honestly, it seems like there's a new scandal in the church every week. And, and I don't say this to um, shame people or presume that uh, I'm any better than them. But I say this because I think there's a pandemic in the church right now where we have put so much of an emphasis on knowing the right things, on fancy church programs, on spiritual activities, while neglecting the things Jesus cares about the most. You can be right and still be wrong. You know, we have intellectualized our faith to the point where we have lost the one thing Jesus says matters the most love. Um, you know, to be honest, it was very disheartening um, for me as an Asian American pastor uh, to hear so many people this past week tell me that their churches have been dead silent about the things happening to the AAPI community right now. And I'm not saying that uh, churches need to post something on social media or put out a statement because honestly, like these things can be very performative. So I'm not going to judge a church that didn't do that. But the fact that so many large churches that have huge Asian populations in their congregations have been okay carrying on business as usual as long as it doesn't affect their regularly scheduled programming, that is very alarming to me. This is not the Jesus we see here. He doesn't care about the regularly scheduled programming. It says in verse 15 that the chief priests and the scribes were pissed because now all hell had broken loose in the temple and they said even the children are crying out Hosanna to the son of David and it says they're indignant. They're like, Jesus, do you see what you've done? Do you see the chaos that you've caused? And Jesus says, don't you see? These children get it better than you do. You think you know me so well, you don't know me at all. Do you see what's happening? When they want Jesus to use force, he's a gentle, humble king mounted on a donkey. And then when they want Jesus to be silent and maintain the status quo, he's flipping tables, causing a ruckus. And the people supposedly closest to God are the ones who don't get it. And isn't this just like the church today? We're so loud and quick to speak at times when we should stand down and be humble. And then we're dead silent when we should be speaking out using our voice. Um, as I was studying this passage over the past week, I kept having to stop at verse 9 when the crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And that word Hosanna literally means help. Save me. Help. I mean, is there a word that more vividly captures what so many of us are feeling in our hearts this morning? You know, uh, like when I saw the headline this week of yet another mass shooting in our country that claimed the lives of 10 people in Boulder, I literally said out loud, Lord, help. My heart can't take this anymore. Just when you thought things were, quote, going back to normal, in two consecutive weeks, you get Atlanta and Boulder. And this is on the heels of everything that's already happened in the past 12 months. The pandemic alone would have been devastating enough. But that was just the backdrop for everything that has ripped this country apart. Not to mention everything happening in our own individual lives. Loss of jobs. The death of family members. 
broken marriages and relationships. It's overwhelming. And like the scene in Matthew 21, there is at this very moment, I think, a collective groaning for help that has reached a fever pitch. And, you know, I want to offer an encouragement for any of us this morning who, like me, might be feeling particularly helpless as you come into worship today. Uh, maybe you are already feeling helpless because of everything happening in the world. And, and, and maybe now as a result of this sermon, you feel even more helpless because you realize, oh man, like not only is my life a wreck, not only is the world a wreck, but I, I don't understand Jesus at all. Not only is there a problem out there, but there's a problem in here. You know, I've created a false Jesus for myself, a Jesus that exists to serve me, a Jesus that allows me to ignore the needs of those in my community, a Jesus that justifies my condemnation of other people. And for those of you who can resonate with that, I want to say this to you today. Um, you know, in Luke's version of this story, Luke actually adds a section right before Jesus' cleansing of the temple that I think is very profound. And it's only found in Luke's version. And it says in Luke 19.41 that as Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And let me explain the significance of that. What you have here is Jesus standing in front of this city, weeping for his people, knowing that in just a few days, these are the same people who are going to yell, crucify him. He weeps for those who will betray him. And I think this should come as a huge comfort for us on this Palm Sunday because it's easy to read a passage like this and feel condemned. Um, as a Christian leader this week, I had to ask myself, if Jesus came into our church or walked into this Zoom chat, like, would he start flipping tables too? Would he start driving people out? And, and the temptation, I think, is for us to say, okay, uh, I, I don't want Jesus to be mad at me. Um, you know, uh, I, I got to do this, this, and this. But you see, this is why the gospel is so beautiful. Because God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 He dies not for people who get it. He dies for people who don't get it. When Jesus weeps over the city, he knows all the people who are standing there with palm branches by the end of the week are going to abandon him because he isn't the king they want him to be. And yet these are the very people for whom Jesus gives his life. It's a scandalous act of grace. And on the cross, we see the most profound picture of a Jesus who can't be contained, who can't be put in a box, because here he is, a king, dying a criminal's death, willingly subjecting himself to violence and injustice to do what you and I could not accomplish on our own to atone for our sins. In other words, it's the very fact that we are so helpless that makes the gospel so unique and liberating. And, and so friends, this morning, um, let me just close by saying this. All of us are presented with a choice. Are we willing to follow this Jesus? A Jesus who gives his life for the sake of his enemies? A Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve? 
a Jesus whose sacrifice demands all of us? Will you crown him or will you crucify him? There is no middle ground. But I'll tell you this. If you crown him and if you allow this Jesus to be the Lord of your life, your life may not look the way you thought it would. You're, you may uh, have to do some difficult things. You may have to love some people who are really hard to love. But I guarantee you that you will experience a true and lasting peace. A peace that in case uh, you haven't realized, this world cannot offer you. So this morning, may we surrender to this Jesus. Not the Jesus we've created in our minds for our own benefit but the Jesus who comes to save the world by dying on a cross. Let's pray. Gracious God, um, our hearts are uh, heavy this morning um, as we think about um, all that's been happening the past few weeks, um, not only uh, with the shootings in Atlanta, but this week, yet another mass shooting in Boulder. Our hearts are grieved uh, for the victims' families, um, for the loved ones. Um, this week, we're watching video after video on our social media feeds of more um, Asian Americans, particularly Asian American elderly, being attacked. Um, and it's, it's overwhelming. It's exhausting. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a season when just when we felt like there was light at the end of the tunnel with this, with this pandemic, it just feels like even normal is devastating. And we come and, and, and we hear the voices of those lining the streets in Jerusalem that day echoed in our own hearts this morning as they cried, Hosanna. Help, save me. And this morning we come to you with the same cry. Hosanna, help us, save us. But we also come in the reality that through your work on the cross, through your life and your death and your resurrection, you've answered that prayer. You have answered our collective cries for help and salvation and I pray that even in the midst of what we're feeling, even in the midst of the grief and pain of our communities, that we would cling to that hope offered to us in the gospel. We thank you for uh, this church. We thank you that we can, ex we can walk through this season together as a community. We pray that you would continue to mold us into the type of people who represent who you really are. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.